Good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we gather together this morning in awe of who you are and your great love for us. What can we say or do to show you the honor and glory you rightly deserve? Jesus, you are our King and worthy of all of our praise. By the Holy Spirit, your great love story was written, and we get the privilege of studying it this morning. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalms 19, 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. We confess, Lord, that being obedient to you and your holy word is hard. Our selfish flesh betrays us often. We search for fulfillment and comfort in worldly things, and are too often we forget that you are all we really need. And yet, even in our sin, you call us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. Oh God, help us to be faithful to you, our King and Redeemer. We need your Spirit to help us submit and act in obedience. Your extravagant love can change even the toughest and hardest hearts. On that cross, you poured out the greatest love the world has ever known. We are so unworthy, Lord, and yet you call us out of death and offer us eternal life. You have asked us to remember your body and blood often, to remember that moment when death was defeated forever, and by your blood, our sins are washed white as snow. As we read your word this morning and learn about communion, please soften our hearts and our minds. May our love for you be renewed, and may our lives be forever changed. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. You guys can have a seat. Well, we're in... Uh, Mark 14 today, Mark 14, we're going to be covering verses 12 through 25. You can turn there in your Bible. And you're going to want to get your pens and notebooks ready today. We're going to be going through a good amount of scripture. Have you guys ever been at an event that serves as a ritual, like a wedding or a birthday or graduation, and wondered, why do we do this? My wife and I are taking dancing lessons. It's a fun thing to do if you've never done it before. And yesterday we went to a similar tradition, an event that talks about the, the changing from one uh, level to another level of dancing. And uh, I had that thought through my head most of the, the time we were there. Why do we do this? Uh, how was this started? We have many such traditions, don't we, in our religion in our uh, Christianity handed down from earlier generations, but maybe you have thought to yourself before, why do we do them? Or maybe it's just dawning on you this morning, that question. The church is full of these rituals, and many of us as believers were brought up doing them, but we don't exactly necessarily know why we do them. Or maybe you're newer to the faith, and you've never had it explained to you why we do such things, things like communion. 
I've shared with you before the first time that I had communion. It was at my uncle and aunt's church, and after sitting through what I am sure was an amazing Christmas sermon, I just don't remember it because I was eight, I remember the plates circulating and being told to take a cup with grape juice in it and a piece of this little tiny bread that was really hard. And I was so hungry that I immediately put the bread into my mouth and started to drink back the cup. And I also remember realizing mid-gulp that no one else was doing it. So I promptly tried to spit it back out. Very irreverent, if you get my drift. And it was a time where I was sitting there thinking to myself, what is this? What is going on? What are we doing? It's important to know why we do what we do. But this morning, I'm thankful to arrive at the text before us because it gives us a blessing of delving into this topic of communion deeper than what we usually do, uh, to take a look at what we participate in each week. And so today, we're going to do a little bit of what's called catechesis. Everybody say catechesis. Everybody thinks that in, in our lower liturgy, lower level liturgy of the Protestants, we think, oh, that's something that the Catholics do is catechism for their kids. Catechesis is simply a Greek word that means education or teaching. And so uh, we're going to catechize ourselves this morning a bit with communion because I think many of us were a little bit illiterate as to why we do what we do with communion. And what I hope to unpack for you this morning is the idea that communion is a new covenant ceremony. The Last Supper, which we're going to look at tonight, where Jesus sits with his disciples and tells them about the new covenant, it is just that, as a new covenant ceremony. And we repeat this weekly in order to maintain our faith, and I'll tell you why. And being believers of the new covenant and participants in it, we need to know and understand why it is that we do this odd thing with this piece of bread and this cup and why it's so significant to us. And I think this is a good thing because I think in the Protestant religion, especially a church like ours that's not tied to any direct denomination or tradition, uh, we sometimes start to go, well, what's the point of this? And we almost become a little bit irreverent and a little bit too informal with it, thinking that we're being good Protestants because we're not revering the actual bread and the cup. So let's jump into the story right away and see what Mark has to share with us about the Last Supper, and we'll, we'll break it down piece uh, by piece, um, starting there in verse 12. Would you look there with me? It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, <clears throat> The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. As in the rest of his gospel, Mark is expedient. He's quick in writing down details. That's why his gospel is so short. And so he's giving us details for the listening church to hear about what's going on here. But the speed often uh, can be hard for us. Removed 2,000 years chronologically as well uh, in a, as being in a totally different culture. It can cause us to hurry past what we should look at in such depth. And one of those things is the Old Testament or Old Covenant importance of communion. And that's the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the Old Covenant importance of communion. You'll notice the word Passover used there. We look at this and we think, oh yeah, that was an Old Testament feast. It was no big deal. It kind of comes from the book of Exodus. But let's really dig into it. The core of this section is painting the background of Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And so let's unpack this uh, by looking at the topic of animal sacrifice and covenant. This is something we don't do in the, uh, in the world today, in 2020. And so we want to look at it and see what's going on. So this morning, would you turn with me to Genesis 3? And we're going to start all the way back at the beginning and look at this idea of animal sacrifice and covenant. Genesis 3, right there in the beginning of your Bible. Remember that animals were created in a way that they lived in shalom with the rest of creation, including mankind. It'd be kind of cool, huh? Wouldn't have to worry about bears if you went camping. And Adam was given a job of naming the animals and having sovereignty over them, stewarding them. Not, this isn't hunting them at this point, right? This is stewarding them. And all they had to do was remain in submission to God's sovereign rule, and they would have had this amazing life, Adam and Eve. But then Eve and Adam rebelled against God's position of authority, much like you and I would, and ushered sin into creation. And they suffered the consequence of division from God and from one another. Immediately, you see the world just crack and break when sin comes into it. And they recognized that they were ashamed at this fact, that they had broken apart from God and broken apart from one another. And this is symbolized by seeing that they were naked. This is not a statement of sexuality or, or anything like that. It's a statement of shame. They felt shame at this sin. And so God, in 321 here, there's this small verse that I think often we skip past. God met them in this place and covered their shame. Look, look at what he, it says there. In Genesis 3.21, it says, And Yahweh, God, the Lord God, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now we might think, well, he just manifested them out of nothing like he did the entire world. Or it could be that he actually had Adam and Eve kill an animal in order to use their skins to cover themselves. We don't know for sure, but many people agree that this indeed happened. It was in this moment that God met them in this place of shame and, and covered them. He did so by acknowledging that they had brought death into creation, and they acknowledged by this sacrifice that it indeed was something that brought death as he had promised them. And so these animal skins were used to cover their shame. And there we have the first animal sacrifice that recognizes the consequences of sin and the need to cover it, to cover our shame. It's not a hill to die on whether or not this actually was 100% how it occurred, but we see there that this is what happened, that first sacrifice. But then if you move forward, go to the right a bit and go to Genesis 15, we get another added element of this idea of uh, animal sacrifice. And we see here God has chosen Abram. He's pulled him out of uh, paganism in the land of the Chaldeans, in Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls him out to a land that he's going to show him. And there in that land, he reveals himself to Abram and makes this very interesting uh, covenant with him about his offspring being a blessing to the world. And he revisits him a second time in Genesis 15 here, and starting in verse 5, we see this covenant that is given. Let's take a look there at 5 through 21. It says, he brought him outside. God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, Abram didn't have any offspring by this point, but he believed Yahweh. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, 
a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, all animals that are in the prime of their lives. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So you've got a half, uh, two halves of, a car- of carcasses laid as if there's a pathway in the middle, okay? Blood everywhere. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. In this ceremony, Abraham Uh, Abram at this time prepared the picture of what is called cutting covenant. This was symbolic in that the halves that are laid and the path that's put in the middle, uh, it shows both parties in the covenant that they would rather have done to them what was done to the animals than breaking the covenant. It's as if they were stating to one another by walking together through the animal carcasses, it's as if they were stating, I am ready to suffer the same fate as these animals if I break faithfulness with you. But notice that this is an interesting covenant. It involves a response by both parties. As you continue on, you see that it is a bilateral covenant, meaning two parties are in agreement there. Abraham would have to take on the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and would need to reflect Yahweh in acting in righteousness and justice. But the actual entry into the covenant is completely one-sided. It's unilateral on the part of God alone. He actually puts Abram to sleep and goes through it, stating very clearly that he will take on the burden of the faithfulness of this covenant. What a perfect picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ brought us into his grace. He bought us by his grace and mercy alone. Nothing that we did. He alone is the one that wrought salvation for us. We now respond by entering, just as Abram did, into the covenant by the sign of baptism. Baptism has replaced circumcision, which brings us into his covenant community. And we strive to then live in righteousness and justice, just as Abram did. But he, God, is the one by whose son and his son's blood the covenant is initiated. All the way back in Genesis 15, we see the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, you guys know the story from there. The Israelites found themselves around 450 years later in place in Egypt where they were enslaved and crying out to God just as God had promised Abram here. They were crying out to God for freedom from their enslavers and God heard their cry and through a man named Moses was going to lead them out of Egypt. But first, he had to convince Pharaoh to, you guys know the line, everybody say it in a deep voice, let my people go. Right? You guys have watched the the old movie there. He had to convince him to let my people go, right? That whole thing. And so how did he do that? He did that by these plagues that he put in place. And the last of which 
was that the firstborn son of every household would die. And these plagues, what they were, was they were warfare. We like to make them kind of almost cartoony in our Sunday school classes. Yahweh was slicing down every single god of the pharaohs, every single god of Egypt, going to war against them and defeating them. And the last to be defeated was Pharaoh himself, that his lineage was not godlike. Only God the Father's son was the true lineage of deity. And so he was showing this in this last plague. And this would have affected everyone in the land because remember, even the Israelites had started to buy in already, at least partially, to the pagan system of deities, so much so that in a few chapters we will see them sacrificing a golden calf, a deity of the Egyptians. And so all the people, the pagans, the Egyptians, and the Israelites, they were worthy of God's wrath of punishment because they had, they had forsaken God. They had fought against him. And this was what was going on. Yet God was protective of his people because of his promise to Abram and passed over their iniquity by the blood of a sacrifice that acted as propitiation for their sins. A sacrifice that would take away the wrath of God over a people that had refused his sovereignty. That's what propitiation means. And this was the final act of God that purchased freedom from the Egyptians for the Israelites so that the Jews could go out into the wilderness of Sinai, Sinai and receive the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which they would later break over and over and over. And eventually the people would cry out to God, wondering if there would ever be a time where full restoration and shalom would come because their hearts were so against God. And all of this is pictured there in Exodus. Take a look at Exodus. Go to your right in your Bible and look at Exodus chapter 12, Verses 1 through 17. Exodus 12, give me an amen when you get there. This is a long section of scripture here, but let's go ahead and dig into it. The Passover, Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, everything is new again. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Till all of the congregation or the assembly of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. In other words, there's enough for everyone. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn." In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, ready to go and be on mission with God to go and worship. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute, execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. 
throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Look ahead to verse 24 there. You shall observe this rite as a statute for, for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? In other words, why do we do this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of people in Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. This was a beautiful picture of God's salvation for his people to free them from slavery just as we have been freed from the slave block of sin. And this idea, this feast, it went generations beyond that exodus. And at the height of the sin of Israel during the consequences of being taken into exile, they were still practicing this. The Babylonians were taking Israel out of the land and they were crying out to God saying, God, you're our, our God who saved us in the Exodus and in the Passover. Where are you? And so a man named Jeremiah, a prophet, stands up at that point and he tells them what God wants to proclaim. He proclaimed that while everything around them was crumbling and it seemed as if there was no hope, God still wanted to give a confident expectation that a new covenant not an entirely new one, but one that would overcome the weaknesses of the old Mosaic covenant. It would indeed come. It was a hopeful promise that in a sense breathed life into the Abrahamic covenant that seemed to be fading away, that through Abraham's offspring, peace would eventually come. Look up at the screen with me to Jeremiah 31. This is from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah promised that a new covenant would be coming. In this tradition, in all these stories that I've given you, they would continue amidst this hope of the new covenant, waiting for it to come. And at the time of Jesus, it had felt like silence because 400 plus years had passed since there was any prophecy in the land. But the Passover was still being observed, especially in the city of Jerusalem, because the temple had been placed there and anyone who could afford to come would come yearly. And the rule was that the communal meal of the Passover that accompanied the sacrifice of the lamb without spot or blemish needed to happen within the city walls near the temple. Now, at the time of Jesus, and you can go ahead and turn back to Mark there in your Bible. At the time of Jesus, the population of Jerusalem was the size of Kaiser or West Salem. It wasn't that large. 
But so many people would come that hundreds of thousands of lambs would be slaughtered. The historian Josephus reported that at Passover in AD 66, not even 40 years past Jesus, 255,600 lambs were slaughtered in the temple in one week. 255,600 lambs. A lamb for every 10 people was used. And so you can imagine the number of people that were in that city. Praise God, PETA didn't exist at that time because I'm sure they would have shut the city down. Can you even imagine how much uproar there would have been? 255,000 animals. And all the people that had sacrificed those animals were scrambling to find a place to have a Passover Seder. You see, that many people coming into the town, they had to rent out rooms. It would have, it would have been like these, these rental services online uh, to the nth degree, right? Exponential, people trying to rent out their rooms. There were so many people that the religious leaders had to make a loophole that you didn't have to eat the Passover meal on the day of Passover. You could eat it at any time during the week. And so all throughout that week, people were eating the Passover meal. And then on Passover itself, they were going and sacrificing the lamb. And Mark casts the preparation of this Passover meal in a way that shows Jesus. We read it almost as if he was this mystical fortune teller telling them what they will see as they go and find this man. And that could be, it could be. But Jesus could have, you know, likely tapped into a vision of the Holy Spirit. But many commentators agree that we read it actually a bit wrong. In fact, what Mark 14 says is that he had gone forward uh, ahead of time, made arrangements with someone in a house, made arrangements to have a sign for his disciples to follow, and then just kind of laid it out for his disciples as if they're directions. Now, we get this from the fact that men rarely, if ever, gathered water. And so the idea was that uh, in that day, women were the ones that went and gathered water. So you'd have this throng of women and the idea is, how do I help my disciples know who to follow to the right house? <laughs> because there's so many people in Jerusalem. Well, they'd worked out a sign that there was going to be a man servant of the household that would be the one who, to whom the, the disciples would connect. And he would take them to uh, the proper place where everything was already prepared in order for there to be a Seder meal. Now, this is not a point to die on for sure, but a great possibility. Before we get into that, the details of the actual dinner, let's take a step from this old covenant importance and look next at the communal importance of communion, the communal importance of communion. I've given you a super fast background here of the old covenant importance, but there's also a piece, again, that we often missed because of being removed culturally and chronologically from uh, this time period. So let's take a look there at what's happening. The core of this section is found in verses 18 through 20, but let's read the whole uh, paragraph here, 17 through 21. It says, And when it was evening, there in Mark 14, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? They went around the room. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
This room is full of people, probably, as we see here, more than just the 12 apostles and Jesus, because he has to specify. He says it's actually one of the 12. And the core here is in verses 18 through 20. In this culture, to share a meal with someone was our version of signing a peace treaty in front of witnesses. So imagine being Judas, in essence, signing a peace treaty, knowing and intending that very night to plan on breaking the treaty and betraying the one with whom you sign. In our society, we've taken a Gnostic view of food, and so this doesn't make great sense to us. We often either hold to the hedonistic Gnostic view in line with let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, and we become gluttons, engaging food as if it's a drug. Or we take the more ascetic approach in our approach to food, seeing it in kind of a utilitarian fashion, just for nutrition, practicing denial. And this was prominent in Paul's day, especially in the early church, and something he saw creeping into the church. The, the, book of, the letter of Colossians was written in part to combat this. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy saying, there will come people that tell you to deny certain foods, and they're actually false teachers. And so this was something that had crept in. You had people on both sides, which are both Gnostic views. But in the days of Jesus, food was a hard-earned provision from God, so it was the greatest form of love and hospitality and sacrifice to eat a meal together. Realize that to be the host of a meal for a large group of people meant that you and your family probably wouldn't eat the next few days because you were given provision to love others. I recognized this for the first time when I went to Burkina Faso. We were out in the bush and we were training some pastors and everyone there, their, their average caloric intake was about 250 calories a day. Okay, so that's like a Snickers bar a day. And some days you wouldn't even eat. And so we went to this house and this woman who was elderly and, and uh, she was very, very skinny, she presented us with, with food and, and it was a plate with rice and some meat and some vegetables from, from their garden and I wasn't that hungry that day, and, and there were kind of flies flying all over it, and I was new to this whole missionary thing. And so I, I kind of looked over at our, our host, Marcel, and I said, I said, Marcel, I'm actually not that hungry. And he looked at me with giant eyes, and he said, you will eat this food. And, and I said, okay, why? And he said, because it's all their food for the week. You see, eating a meal with someone was a sign of massive love, it was a sign of huge hospitality, greater than what we can ever imagine in the United States. We pull some things out of our cabinet, we go to the store, and it's no big deal. We might order out. And so we miss this idea of what's going on here. It was the literal outworking of the truth. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life or life sustenance for his friends. And this is why meals were at the core of most of society uh, and the life of society, especially within the church. This is from Acts 2.42. It says that one of the recognitions of uh, the early church was that they were known for their communal meals. It says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. This isn't specifically saying just communion. They were known for a communion meal, but also these things called agape meals or love feasts, from which we get the idea of potlucks. That's why everybody who's a good, solid Baptist has been to hundreds of potlucks, is because the Baptists, right, they really want to hammer home that agape meal idea, and that's why we do that as well. And this is why when COVID is not a factor, we at Mission Center a lot of what we do around meals. 
Not because we want to be hedonistic, not because we want to be utilitarian, not to worship food or cause ourselves to be gluttons, but to show the most basic form of love to one another. Bringing something to the potluck of a community group, dear friends, is basic love. I always worry about us when we can't even bring a bag of chips to a potluck because we're just too busy. It's a sign of something far deeper than just our ability to get to the store. It's the fact that we've lost the idea of hospitality and love. And this idea of a communal meal looks forward to and symbolizes the greatest of all feasts that will occur in heaven with God when the fullness of restoration has occurred. The marriage feast of the Lamb is one that's pictured at the end of this book that we read uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, talking about this feast that we will do to celebrate with Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And so this background of communal meal gives us an understanding of how heavy and earth-shattering it must have been for the disciples as they're dipping bread into whatever meal is there to hear Jesus say that one of those sitting with them, even one of the twelve, would betray him that very night. And the idiomatic way that Jesus is speaking is not literally identifying Judas. It's not as if he says, and now the guy who puts his bread in, that's the one. Because what would have happened? Everybody would have jumped Judas and beat the snot out of him and been like, dude, what are you doing? No, his idiomatic way of speaking was saying, guys, you have to realize you're all going to betray me, especially one person. This betrayal is shown in a messianic and prophetic way in the Psalms. This is from Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We look at that ate my bread as if it's just a description, right? As if it's almost like an adjective. Uh, But the reality is, is he's saying, the one who I signed a peace treaty with, one of my closest friends has lifted his heel against me. We also see it in Psalm 55. Psalm 55 has been one of the most comforting psalms to me and many other pastors that I know of when uh, people within their church end up betraying the church and walking away. The number one thing I hear from other pastors when I talk to them about the hurt that they've felt from people harming them in their congregation, this is how they usually describe it. I had this person in my house sitting at my dinner table, and they betrayed our church. Isn't that interesting? That that's where our minds go to is we showed hospitality and gave food to these people, and that's why it's such a betrayal. But this is from Psalm 55. It speaks the same thing. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. No one could imagine that anyone, especially one of Jesus' closest allies, Sharing a meal with him that very night could betray him. Commentator C.E. Arnold notes that, uh, and this is a quote, drinking the cup of someone was understood as a means of entering into a communion relationship with that person. Listen, to the point that one shared that person's destiny for good or for ill, end quote. By morning, all had left him. Even John, who stood at a distance as he watched his Messiah be crucified and raised up on the cross of Calvary. Judas, we are later told, would kill himself in shame at his treachery and greed, entering into perdition, a term that means eternal damnation. And it was indeed true that it was better if Judas had never been born. Judas, 
is the representative of all who look into the loving eyes of Christ and walk away because their own desires lead them away from his love in betrayal. For even these people, though, Jesus gave his very life. Imagine sitting there with a room full of people that you know may at one time, and in his case, absolutely will betray you, and yet saying, I pour out my life for you anyway. Oh, amazing. Amazing is the love of God. It was this background and context that, again, speaks to the extravagant love of Jesus, that idea we discussed last week. While humanity, represented by his closest friends, betrayed Jesus, Christ died for them, and Christ died for us while we were yet enemies. And this leads us to the next section here, the institution of communion, the new covenant ceremony. The institution of communion, the new covenant ceremony. It is with the backdrop of these two meanings, the old covenant meaning and the communion meaning, the communal meaning, that Mark presents us with the story of the Last Supper in the upper room. We have the prior covenants we talked about as the foundation of Israel's identity as the covenant people of God. We have the communal importance of Passover in the life of Israel. And now let's read the last section there of our text, 22 through 25 in Mark 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Passover meals were conducted in family units. If a family, as we saw earlier, did not have enough members, they would bring someone else in to eat the entire lamb. And the head of the family, usually the father, would lead the family through the meal. In this case, it would absolutely be the rabbi among them, Jesus. And if the Passover meal that night bore any resemblance to the Passover Seder that is practiced by Jews today, we don't know 100% that it was, But if it bears any resemblance, then there was bread that was to be broken and eaten at multiple points, and various points, four in particular, at which wine was to be drunk. And during the meal, the story of the Exodus would have been told, and the idea of the Passover lamb would have been holding and almost floating heavily in the room. With 255,000 plus lambs having been sacrificed or being sacrificed at the temple, you can imagine the smell that permeated the entire city, roasted lamb hanging in the air all their senses enthralled with the story of the Exodus. And no one knows for sure which point of the multiple points that matzah bread was broken and eaten that Jesus spoke up and said what we read in Mark. No one knows for sure at which point the cup uh, was brought forward and handed out. We shouldn't hold to any one firm position. It doesn't help us to do so. But just for the idea of walking through this, I want to present something to you. In the contemporary Seder meal, there is a point at which the bread has been broken and is taken and passed around to the attendees. And again, we don't know for sure that this is how this meal was ordered. It may have been just a basic Sabbath meal practiced on the Passover. But Jesus was quite clearly offering the bread to those present and reciting these words as a statement that he would be the Passover sacrifice. His body would be the lamb that was given to free his people and save them from death and the wrath of God. Imagine how much, after having grown up in this idea of the Passover, you're used to things going a certain way, and yet something changes. 
right? Imagine if your Christmas tradition you've done for 30 plus years, somebody throws a wrench in it. Imagine what happens internally. You're thinking, what are you doing? And yet he's saying something so different that it piques their interest. This idea of Jesus being our Passover lamb is the very thing that Paul comments on in 1 Corinthians. This is from the second half of 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Then also in the Passover sacrifice, the lamb of the blood would have been collected and poured out before the carcass was placed on the altar of fire. And this pouring out of blood was always poured out as an offering to atone for the sins of the offerer and turn away the wrath of the almighty judge who justly judges people who have sinned against him. In the Passover in Egypt, it had the secondary meaning of pleading the blood as it was placed on the door. It was pleading in repentance and trust and provision of Yahweh. It was placed on the mantles of the door so that the destroyer would pass over. And just as the blood of that original lamb had been the key piece to the covenant of trust with Yahweh, Jesus' blood now would be poured out for all who would receive him. That phrase, poured out, was one of sacrifice. They knew exactly what he was saying. And to finish it all off, Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a saying in which Jesus is again declaring his death saying, I'm just not going to drink. I'll be dead. That's what it means. Interestingly enough, there is record, though, in the Bible of Jesus drinking and eating again after his resurrection. And possibly by this interpretation, that signifies that Jesus at that point realizes he had fully come into his kingdom and been enthroned as king, an inaugural kingdom that is to be fulfilled in completion at the end of days. So much depth and meaning in this Last Supper, the supper of Christ with his disciples that Mark gives us. By the time the Gospel of Luke is written to corroborate the Gospel account of Mark that we read, the church had already solidified the use of communion as a sacrament. And Luke's account gives us a bit more in that it adds the words to it, do this in remembrance of me. So for us, 2,000 years later, the sacrament still has amazing, amazing meaning. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the last thing I want to look at this morning as we finish up is the meaning of the meal of Holy Communion for you and for me. The meaning of the meal of Holy Communion. Paul gives us further evidence of the use of this sacrament in the early church as he states clearly to the church at Corinth what we read earlier. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Mark was intentionally connecting the two because Mark was written after 1 Corinthians. Do you realize that? Mark was written a few decades, or a decade after 1 Corinthians was written. And so the two are very much linked, and Mark is intending to tell the church that is listening how the institution of the Lord's Supper went. From this passage and the original narratives in the Gospels, we can see that the communion meal that we celebrate, even in 2020, has at least five meanings for us. And I want to give these to you. First, 
It's simply a remembrance of Jesus and what he did for us. One of the early reformers, Ulrich Zwingli, he very much believed in this, and this is his idea of, of what communion meant. The Catholics celebrate what's called transubstantiation, that the bread and the, the, the cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus, and there's this miraculous thing that occurs. Martin Luther came along and said that he believed that there was reverence in the communion. It was uh, surrounding and underneath and over the communion, but the communion itself wasn't actually the presence of Jesus. Zwingli, Zwingli came along and threw the whole thing for a loop. He said, it's just simply a symbol of remembrance. Where we sit as a church is that, yes, it is a symbol, but the presence of God very much exists, not in the elements of communion, but in the fact that his people take it together. And so we are not Catholic, we are not Zwinglians, we are not Lutherans, we believe the Bible and we try to take from the Bible what it says and what it says is that the presence of God dwells amongst his people, especially at the point with which we take communion. Secondly, it's a means of proclaiming his death and all that it entailed and delivered for us. It is pleading the blood of Jesus for our very lives and households just as the Israelites did during Passover. Third, it's a means of communion with Christ Communion with Christ. At the moment that we are taking it, it's not only that Jesus by his Holy Spirit exists within myself and in all of us collectively, but we're actually communing. We are sharing a meal with Jesus. And this is what 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17 says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? just as it was in those days to eat a meal with someone with whom you were at peace. Taking of the elements symbolizing the body and blood of Christ is a means of communing with him. And this gives us another idea too, that fourth, it's not only a means of communing with Christ, it's also a means of communing with his people. Communion with his people. The very next verse there in that same section, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 10, says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In Mark, notice the emphasis is not just on the contents of the cup, but the sharing of the cup. It is a means of communing and stating clearly our oneness and unity with one another in Christ. And this is why, dear friends, it is so important that we take communion together, and when we do, that there is indeed oneness and reconciliation amongst us. Amen. The work we call you to throughout the week to bring true peace and reconciliation when conflict occurs, it is kingdom work. As you'll see in a second, the early church, if they knew conflict existed between two people in the church, you know what they'd do? They'd say, you guys don't get to come to church until you work it out. They literally wouldn't let them in the doors. But in our day, we've so cast that aside and we have this consumer mentality of, I'm going to go to church or check out this podcast and I'm a Christian, I wear the Christian t-shirts, I listen to K-Love, I'm good, right? That we miss completely the point of communion. We take it as if it's a checkup at the doctor, salvation-wise, as opposed to seeing what it truly is, that it is common unity in Christ at peace. Lastly, taking communion together 
is a declaration of our mission and inheritance. It's a declaration of our current mission with Christ to proclaim his gospel and to live lives of righteousness and justice, but it's also a statement of our confident expectation of the inheritance that Christ's work has purchased for us. It's a declaration of our mission and inheritance. Luke 22, 28 through 30 says this, Christ spoke to his disciples and he said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When we take communion, it's this moment where we step out of time, out of the suffering of this present trial, and we ascend into the heavenlies, in a sense, to commune with God and to proclaim that we know what's going to occur, that the kingdom is coming, and he's the one that purchased it for us. And so, brothers and sisters, the application of today's teaching is simply this. I'm going to ask you a few different questions. First, when you approach communion, how do you prepare your heart? Do you take stock of the amazing honor that you're participating in a tradition that has spanned centuries and cultures because of the blood of Jesus? Do you approach it with reverence? Do you take stock of the fact that you're taking part in the Passover meal of the Passover lamb that has made it possible for the wrath of God and rightly deserved penalty of death to pass over you? Do you come to communion, secondly, with a habit of confession and repentance before you participate? Even now, dear church, are you preparing your hearts and laying at the foot of the cross anything that might hinder you from communion with God and from one another? Do you prepare your hearts beginning on Monday for the fact that you will be at the altar of Christ on Sunday? Or is it a last-second thing? Oh, we got to take communion. Oh, yeah. Third, do you keep the upcoming participation in communion in mind as you walk throughout the week and through life? Do you intentionally keep short accounts on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday throughout the week and reconcile quickly when conflict occurs because you know that you'll be proclaiming the oneness of God's people come Sunday. I am so honored to get to be a pastor and preach to you. You know why? It's really healthy for me because if I get in a fight with my wife on Monday or if I have conflict with somebody on Tuesday or if I yell at my kids on Wednesday, guess what I'm doing immediately? I'm trying to figure it out because to get up here on Sunday and to be a hypocrite is a heavy weight that I cannot bear. I don't do it perfectly, but man, it is so nice to know that I have Sunday to look forward to, and therefore the week, my answers come easily as to whether or not I should repent and reconcile. We should have that for all of us because of communion. In the first century, the apostles put together a short manual of teachings to distribute to the fledgling church so that all local assemblies were operating off the same traditions. It was called in Greek the Didache. Everybody say Didache. The Didache. It's spelled didache, (laughs) but it's didache. It means teaching. Its longer name was the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. In it, there were specific sections given to various topics, one of which was communion. Here is what is stated as an overall command for the taking of communion. It says, on the Lord's day, come together, break bread, and give thanks, having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Anyone who has a dispute with one another must not join your assembly until they have been reconciled so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. 
For this is the sacrifice spoken of by the Lord. In every place and at every time, offer me a pure sacrifice, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. So important was the desire to join with Christ in purity as a unified community, that sins were confessed and disputes were reconciled so that the body of believers could approach Christ in holiness. And so this morning, as we approach communion, I want to do a couple of things. The first thing I want to do is I want us to speak out of our common faith the truths that we have looked at. And then we're going to take a moment of silent confession where in our hearts we will confess and lay at the feet of Jesus anything that we need to including any conflict that we have that we intend to reconcile this week. But first, let's speak that common faith. These are three questions and answers I'm going to read out of what's a tool that we use called the New City Catechism. It's put together by Tim Keller's church. It's very helpful in training your children and in training the church. And so I'm going to ask you the italicized question, and then we together are going to speak the truth of what we see to one another in catechesis. Dear church, what are the sacraments or ordinances? The sacraments or ordinances given by God and instituted by Christ, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, are visible signs and seals that we are bound together as a community of faith by his death and resurrection. By our use of them, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Church, what is the Lord's Supper? Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. And lastly, church, does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? No, Christ died once for all. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal celebrating Christ's atoning work, as it is also a means of strengthening our faith as we look to him and a foretaste of the future feast. But those who take part with unrepentant hearts eat and drink judgments on themselves. And so now let's take a moment in silent reflection and prayer as we confess to the Lord anything that we know that exists between us and him in sin and anything that exists between us and in conflict with one another. Let's put that at his feet now in silent prayer. And now, if you'll take your prepackaged communion there, peel back that first layer and take out the bread. In the Didache, 
that early apostolic teaching, we know how the early church would take communion. They would take the bread and they'd pray this. We give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you revealed to us through your Son, Jesus. Yours is the glory forever and ever. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and being gathered together became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Let's eat of the bread together now. Then they would take the cup. Go ahead and peel that layer back. They would take the cup and they would pray a simple prayer. We give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of your son, David, which you revealed to us through your son, Jesus. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's drink together of the cup. And after it was consumed, they would pray this. We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have revealed to us through your Son, Jesus. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Almighty Lord, you created all things for your name's sake and gave food and drink to people for their enjoyment so that they would thank you. But you gave us spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your Son. Above all, we thank you that you are powerful Yours is the glory forever and ever. Please remember your church, Lord. Deliver it from all evil. Perfect it in your love. Sanctify it and gather it together from the four winds into your kingdom which you have prepared for it. Yours is the glory forever and ever. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If any man is holy, let him come. If any man is not, let him repent. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord. Amen. Amen.